The Action Network Podcast, named Best Betting Podcast or Radio Show by the Fantasy Sports and Gaming Association, and the number one show for the invested sports fan. Without further ado, that's what the game's all about. All of a sudden, you feel like you can't miss. Welcome to the Action Network Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Moore, Senior NBA Writer. You can follow me on Twitter at HP Basketball. Today's special NBA edition episode, we have games, we have scrimmages, there's actual basketball, new sport being played. It's so exciting. I sat down and watched Pacers Blazers. There's no real reason for me to watch Pacers Blazers. I just did it because I could. As such, we're doing episodes to bring back the NBA season. Today, I'm joined by Seth Partnow from The Athletic, longtime analyst. He worked at Nylon Calculus, a site that I originally set up back in the day. But more notably, he's worked in NBA front offices as in the analytics department. So Seth knows his way around numbers, and he knows his way around the NBA and gained valuable experience working uh, for the Milwaukee Bucks uh, for a time and before rejoining uh, us working class writer schlubs down here beneath the ivory towers. Uh, Seth's got great insights on all number of things, but particularly we wanted to talk today about the impact of schemes and numbers and sustainability and what studies have found on various patterns to try and get an idea for how we should be approaching betting for the NBA bubble resumption. Uh, I'm really interested in the, in the totals. I go back and forth every single day. It seems like I go back to the common kind of thread of oh, the unders are probably the smart play and then go back the other way to a more contrarian view. And so I needed to have Seth on to get through all those kind of subjects. We talk about the Clippers, we talk about the Raptors and all number of things. It's a great, great conversation. Hope you enjoy it. Before you listen, make sure you stop and go check out our app. If you get download the Action Network app, you are going to get the absolute best in sports information content. You are going to get the best information on where the lines are. You're going to get the best information on where the money is moving. You're going to get the best information on who your favorite personalities at Action Network are betting on. We've got pick tracker. We've got odd probabilities. We've got cover probabilities. We have all sorts of stuff. This app is robust. It is smart. It is slick. It is clean. I am not just saying that because I am absolutely a company man and a shill. I would absolutely recommend this even if I did not work for the Action Network. It is by far the best way to track games. I use it constantly. I am not just saying that. It is the fastest stats updating game tracker that I have found anywhere. It's phenomenal. It's a great product. Check it out wherever you get your applications, the Action Network app. All right, let's get started. Here's my conversation with Seth Partnow from The Athletic. Let's kind of start here. The Question that has been debated a lot has been, are these games going to be uh, more high tempo and higher offensive efficiency or because uh, of the unfamiliarity of the surroundings, everyone kind of being stilted and the fact that there's little little to no crowd noise, better communication that the uh, under will actually be the play. The books are shading to the under by a couple of points um, with regards to the totals. Not from a betting perspective, but just from kind of uh, your eye as an analyst, will they reflect the regular season more from a offensive or defensive standpoint? Do you think? Uh, so I actually wrote about this earlier this week, a little bit at the Athletic, in terms of after a layoff, we see that there's a several week 
kind of ramp up of overall offensive rating across the season for whatever reason. And I think it's, it, you can basically just describe it as teams start to play better as they get more familiarity, uh, jump shooting accuracy goes up, turnover rates go down um, kind of as the season progresses and really those first three or four weeks of a season. So kind of the seeding games basically um, are, are that same time frame. Um, in terms of tempo, I don't have a strong prior belief either way. So many things to think about. An additional one is, is kind of the different levels of motivation that we might see, especially as we start to get into like the fourth and fifth games as some of the teams start to um, no longer be viable towards the play-in. So the offensive efficiency reflecting that start of the regular season, I think, is a compelling point. I think that that's one that's that's hard to get around because I, I have a hard time figuring out whether I'm being. I talked about this with um, Dave Dufour over at Locked On Nuggets. Actually, I, I have a hard time figuring out whether I'm being contrarian and talking myself into like if I'm using confirmation bias or if I genuinely if if my thinking is sound. Here's kind of like my thought process. One. I think an empty environment actually increases a sense of awkwardness in regards to like, if you know you're mic'd, like how much more would you talk than you normally would? And talking on defense has been like an issue for like everybody. Like that's consistently a problem for a lot of teams is that they don't talk enough and they're not able to communicate enough. My other thing is, is based off the fact I asked Malone about this and I've heard a couple of other coaches mention it. There's likely to be a simplification of play in terms of they're going to call fewer set plays and they're going to play more read offense. And if they do that, there's two things that happen at once. One, there's probably like a smoothness, I think, more to the offense because you're not, you're not so worried about structure and discipline as you are like, okay, like it's not rolling the ball out there and playing, but it kind of reflects what the 2015 Hawks did. But there is, I think, a higher level of turnovers, and that turnovers are obviously going to lead to transition buckets the other way if they're live ball. So those are kind of my, my ideas for why I'm – leaning towards the over as well as even if I'm wrong and there's not going to be like a higher degree, I think the books are overestimating those numbers and I, and I don't have them like out in front. It's only been slight in terms of the numbers. Like I think the jazz Pelicans number is actually relatively high. Like that one's actually been a pretty high total, but that's my thought process is um, I think that there'll be an awkwardness on defense that will lead to n- at least not better communication. I think that's a, a false number. And then I also think that there'll just be more of a, a an attempt to simplify things, which will increase turnovers. And I think it'll actually increase offensive efficiency a little bit. Is there anything in there beyond like the you know cold hard facts that you have to refute me? You know the the idea of going to a more flow offense. I think that might increase scoring from a point standpoint, not necessarily an efficiency standpoint, but from a point standpoint. In that, I think that could that could cause for an elevated pace just because you know you're not coming dribbling over half court, getting a call from the bench, getting into a set, blah, blah, blah. You're just coming down, calling something on the fly and playing. And if that, you know, saves, you know, a second here, a second there, we're talking about real possessions. Right. Um, so if, if that kind of flow was going to um, increase scoring, I don't think it would be on a, on a efficiency basis. I think it would be on a volume basis. Hmm. Which would have the same effect on the totals, which would be right. So that's no, so we can both be right. I always enjoy when that happens. Um, So I, here's one from your perspective, having worked in a front office, um, how much of your priors would you keep for doing any sort of, if you were trying to develop um, some sort of model to predict success 
for this whole thing, how much of your priors would you keep and how much would you try and like tweak and adjust going forward um, under these kind of conditions? Like, would you increase variance? Like, what does that kind of look like under these conditions, which are very, very, very weird? Um, you know, I, I almost feel like you run it straight and um, manually adjust rather than trying to, to keeping track of your assumptions that you're, you're, you would be putting into a model to, to you know, algorithmically adjust anything for here. Um, I would be very worried about, about uh, thumbing the scale uh, in unintended ways if I, if I started doing that. So, um, you know, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I might, I might see some regression towards the mean in terms of, you know, if someone's having an outlier shooting year, either good or bad, I might adjust to closer to career norms. Um, but beyond that, like I, this is so out of any sort of sample we have right that I, that i that that i i would be very very worried about about over interpreting um even if i if i'm getting the signal of what's what 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 a mechanism is uh for for a change in how how games are playing i would be very worried about over and misinterpreting what the effect that's going to be on on you know what are what are reasonably complex systems in terms of you know an offensive and defensive uh interaction on a possession. I want to talk a little bit about the Clippers because they've been, they continue to be baffling to me. I watched like hundreds of clips of them on both ends of the floor uh, and wrote a big thing on action network about them. And I think a lot of what I ended up getting back to is kind of intangible stuff with them where there's conversations about continuity. And one of the issues, you know, you could talk about like, well, they don't have any continuity. I think the bigger concern for me with regard to continuity is they also don't have any, like, I think they have chemistry issues as well. Those were documented by the athletic um, early in the year that there was some tension with the new guys. And and I'm sure that some of that has been eased, but they've never seemed like a team that just like loves playing together and loves being around each other. They seem like a bunch of professionals that um, happen to work for the same company. And I think under these conditions, you need much more of a bunker type mentality because you're literally bunkered down. Um, that's one of the reasons why I tend to lean towards the Lakers a little bit more as well as I feel like the Lakers are a little bit more comfortable in like, they're not dependent on shooting or variance as much as some other teams are Like they don't need to get hot. They don't need uh, like, they're going to play the same kind of approach that they have. They are pretty v- versatile by all accounts in terms of their defensive scheme um, between the Clippers and the Lakers. Uh, where does your analysis kind of lead you in regards to their overall success probability? Um, I, so it's an interesting question about sort of the, the, the continuity argument almost goes both ways here. I mean, if you have a team that had kind of bad team mojo kind of throughout the season and then they've been through the last four months and are now back together and playing basketball, um, I think some of that might resolve some of those issues just sort of like uh, either, either whatever what were the inciting events are so far in the rearview mirror or okay actually we're playing basketball this is this is pretty okay let's do this so i wouldn't put too much stock in that and also just from a from a stylistic standpoint they are a team that is sort of built to be uh you know to not necessarily need a lot of flow 
um, just because of, you know, you look at, at their, their most creative players are guys who sort of play outside a system and then, you know, in terms of, of, of Kawhi and Lou Williams, certainly. And to, to some degree, Paul George can get a little bit uh, indulgent on the ball also. You know, they, they almost are built to play uh, almost an old style of uh, find a matchup, work it basketball rather than a more flow-based style. So aesthetically, it might not always look awesome, but then Kawhi is still, can say from experience, um, is still isoing you to death a little bit. Yeah. Let's talk about Toronto to continue the path of, of pain. Um, yeah, thank you. As I told my companions today that I can't wait uh, to find out exactly what game it is that the Raptors are going to lose me uh, a large sum of money for the second year in a row. I wanted to talk myself into them. Uh, and I know that you have qualms about all numbers of metrics that are out there. Um, but I tend to look at Synergy Sports as half-court offense as at least like a starting point to get an idea of like, okay, versus you know getting easy buckets running out or just running past guys that aren't trying, which you find a lot in the regular season if you're playing the Cavs or the Hawks or teams of that caliber. You get a higher level of, of engagement in the regular season, you need to be able to execute versus a half court set. And the Raptors were 18th. Now I was using that as a, as an example of like, here's why I think the Celtics can come out until I noticed that the Celtics were 16th in that category. I was like, well, there goes that there's a lot of confidence. Like the Raptors are actually a pretty sexy pick amongst analysts to be like, you know, like they won the title last year. They build that veteran experience. Nick nurse is probably the best coach in the playoffs. Um, I can't quite get there. I don't know why. It's not that I like think Kyle Lowry is a choking choker who chokes anymore. Like I think Nurse is awesome. I love their defensive efficiency. I love their defensive versatility, the way that they're able to like Nurse's willingness to employ whatever strategy best tailors to his opponent, I think is extremely valuable. But I just continue to look at their offense and I'm just like, where are they gonna get the firepower to keep up with it? Like, how are they gonna keep up in these series versus the kind of weapons that they're going against? And a lot of it's like Norman Powell has become like a hyper crazy efficient score. Like his numbers are outrageous. Um, but I still can't quite believe it. And there's enough numbers that I think that's one of the things is I'm supposed to kind of disregard a lot of the data outside of their overall record, um, which was largely built by the way on beating crap teams. And I just have a hard time getting there. Should, do I, do I need to beat myself into submission on the Raptors or is my thinking sound on this? Uh, I think you're thinking it sound. I think you kind of hit on, on the important point there is uh, if you look at record against kind of however you want to find them contending teams, uh, Raptors have been pretty poor this year. Um, they've, they've done a really good job of, of beating the teams they're supposed to beat. And that's, you know, laudable and, and good, but how much, like, as you said, how much does, you know, running up and down and confusing the Cavs mean? in this environment, not much. And that's, you know, a lot of people who are big on the Raptors point to the record with Marc Gasol. Um, all of their losses with Marc Gasol this year have come against the, the, uh, the, 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 um, the, the kind of the top teams. I, I want to say against, you know, the teams you would consider to be for these purposes. I've mostly been taking like the top seven teams in the West, um, all the teams who entering the bubble and in, in playoff position, except for the, the Grizz and then the top six in the East. And I want to say that the, that, the, that uh, since Gasol came back or has played, even with him, they're like five and eight versus those teams or, or, or something like that. Um, apologies, I don't have it in front of me, but it, it's, it's like they're, they're a bunch, a bunch of no with Mark Gasol against the dregs of the league and against the good teams. They're still not great. 
Uh, and and you can see that on on both ends of the floor. I think uh, you paying attention to their half court offense. I think that that's a, I think that's a smart place to start. Maybe suggest using cleaning the glass to cut out garbage time from from that. But uh, but it's it's going to come out with a similar. Um, you know, you're, you're gonna you're gonna send yourself in a similar direction there in terms of their their kind of uh, why they might be you know out talented. Really, you don't want to be too reductive and say best player wins, but once they get to the second round, which matchups do they have? The, do they have much plausible best player in the series equity? Like m- maybe you can talk yourself into Siakam over Tatum, maybe. But I don't think you. I don't think you can say uh, that against either Philly or Milwaukee. Uh, I mean, assuming that those are the those are the the, the, the last four teams in in the second round. Um, so that's the you know that that puts them at a deficit right there as well. Yeah, Krishna Narsu over at B-Ball Index was kind of shared with me. He's got an analysis that just pulled the top 13 teams and teams' performance against those top 13 teams. And Toronto wound up, uh, they went 11-14, and 14, which is the second worst record in the top 10 behind Dallas. And their net rating in those games was actually behind Dallas. Like, the top six teams uh, are all in the positive in terms of net rating, including Denver. And then Dallas is slightly below, and Toronto slightly below that. So it's like... Toronto really did like genuinely struggle with, with elite teams. And I think that that matters when it's like, okay, you know, it's like, well, yeah, but everybody struggles versus elite teams. Well, first of all, Milwaukee didn't, they were plus five because they're a super monster. Again, Boston was actually surprisingly great. Boston, uh, Boston was only 14 and 13, but they had a net rating of plus three, which is the second best in the league. Then you got the Clippers and Lakers, the Rockets, and then the Nuggets all in the positive. So to me, it's like, look, if you want to be considered amongst their up there with Boston and LA and the Clippers for being a threat, you're going to have to like actually beat these teams and they're just keep getting, I think a lot of threat, a lot of credit for last year's win, which I just keep going back. I'm like, I'm not saying that it was all Kawhi cause it wasn't, but I don't know how you really like replace that. Just to put a little bit of context on, on, on those records you gave, I've, I've done research in the past suggesting that to make the conference finals, essentially very few teams. Um, I, I think uh, the, the, the first heat team that won the championship, and one other team that I forget off the top of my head have ever uh, made the conference finals playing less than 40, 400 ball against the kind of those, those top contender type teams in a season. And the vast majority of conference finalists have played at least 500 ball against, uh, against those, those, those top teams. So that, that, you know, as sort of cutoffs, uh, they, um, so I think that is a reasonable indicator to look at for playoff success. I wanted to ask you like this open-ended question. What do you think is the still area to really discover truths about if we look at specifically, like let's talk playoff basketball. What is it that you don't think that we understand enough yet about playoff basketball? So many things we, because we live in sample size and playoffs both shrink sample size and give you a, a, a completely biased sample sized Uh, side note uh, listeners, please don't say that team is, is, you know, it has the third best uh, offense in the playoffs after the first round because part of the reason you use sort of those ratings is against every team. And it's like, well, okay, we, we played, you know, we, we played Orlando and you played Brooklyn. So <laughs> what are we actually comparing? But um, I, I think that the, the big one really is I don't think there's any reason to suspect that the transition to playoff basketball will affect all players equally. We know it's going to be harder games, uh, both because the level of competition is you know higher? I mean, the 
you know, the average, the, the, the average starter in, in the regular season is the 15th or 16th best player at their position in the playoffs. They're the eighth. I mean, that's, that, that's a big difference right there. But beyond that, the kind of the, the time to prep between games, the time to prep specifically for one team is a fundamental change to kind of how a game flows um, and, and how, it's, how it's prepared and executed and weaknesses can get uh, exploited and, and strengths can get muted. Um, I don't think we have really a, a good systemic way of, uh, or systematic way of determining like kind of which players, which teams are more or less susceptible to bigger declines, you know, heading into that kind of environment. It's of course made more difficult by the fact that analysis, like post facto analysis of that is hugely impacted by these tiny sample sizes. But I think that's a, that's just a big one. Like, oh, that's not going to work in the playoffs. Like how often do you, do you, do, do we say that about, about players? Uh, how often, you know, certain players are going to get played off the floor, which is an argument that we won't rehash here, I think, uh, between you and I. But uh, <laughs> um, it's, it, it's, it was, it's been, never been Rudy's defense. Uh, <laughs> but I think that's, that, broadly speaking, that's the, that's the biggest one, is which players and teams, I, I think the 82-game versus 16-game player thing is overly reductive. But I think it is useful to, to remember that, you know, there will be players who are just categorically worse in the playoff environment. There's probably something in there that can be used in selective analysis. It just can't be discussed in the public domain, right? Like it's just, it's, it's, we're not really capable of, of being able to parse these things out. Like I was reading a really interesting thread today about positionality and it was trying to like layer various concepts on top of it. But the problem is like anytime that you get out of traditional positionality, it becomes so complicated as to usually lose people in the discussion because we're just like, oh, it's too complicated. Like, let's just keep it the same. I think that's probably the same thing with these kind of tropes that we trot out about playoff players and playoff teams is, um, you know, it doesn't, it, we aren't in the public domain. We're not really able to parse these things out. I think it's one of the reasons why there are certain teams that like, everyone's like, no, like there's a lot, they carry a lot of respect in the league, but even though there's just like, well, they're not going to win the title, but that doesn't mean that they're garbage. They're just ill suited for this and they haven't gotten the right series of matchups. And I think that that's, that's always something I think about is like, if you just get the right series of matchups, I mean, the Raptors won a title last year because they got the right series of matchups. They had to go through Milwaukee and that was a, as impressive a win as anybody, but, uh, <laughs> but sorry, but, uh, but I also, am just like, yeah, but they still would have been like, Oh, nice story. I got to the finals. I mean, the Warriors won cause they're the Warriors, but then everything happened that happened. So I just think that a lot of the time the, the matchups do continue to be, and we work backwards. Like you said, yeah. afterwards on those discussion points. And I think that, I mean, and it's made also harder by the fact that, that we, because what happened, what happened becomes in our mind, the only thing that could have happened. Um, so there's cert- certainly a kind of like a, a path dependency that makes it hard to really examine counterfactuals and, and, and make kind of the determinations of, of, I mean, the one that sticks in my mind the most is, uh, when is the uh, you know the, the Clippers could never get over the top, but the one that really sticks in my mind was the enormous Game Six comeback the Rockets had, which happened because Corey Brewer and Josh Smith hit a bunch of threes. Right, and it's just like that defined like, that what, era. Yeah. yeah, but what 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 do you take from that about any any of the players involved when like two of the legitimate worst shooters in the modern era just go crazy from three and yeah. and and beat you? 
which is why you should never work backwards. Just never work backwards <laughs> on the results. So I'm not going to let you use your the one that uh, that I know that you have the strongest feelings of, which is not to use not to describe offensive rating as. You know, Marcus All has a 109 offensive rating, which is not accurate. It's the Raptors have a, have an offensive rating of 109 with Marcus All on the floor. So don't use that one. Okay. Amongst the more informed people that are in the public discourse, what's the one use of of metrics that you think is probably the most problematic or off base? What's the one thing that you keep returning to and being like, I don't think that this is the best way, best use of data. Hmm, that's a that's a really good question. I think the biggest one is is then this isn't a specific metric so much as it is just the idea of motivated reasoning. There are tons of stats out there. Most of them are good for something um, and used correctly. They can give you useful information. People tend to be less careful about metric selection when they start from uh, the ordinal rankings that the metric produces. That that one, I agree with the rankings. So I think that's the one instead of having a at least a mental model of what's important. And so, you know, that with the more complicated metrics, that's, that's all obviously hard to do. But if you don't really understand what's going on under the hood, it's very tempting to prioritize the, the, the results that confirm your priors. And I think that's, that's the, the biggest thing that, that, that I, that I see. Um, and that's, you know, the fan's going to fan, but you know, if we're, if we're trying to determine, you know, I don't want to say truth, but uh, if you're trying to estimate a distribution using a probability distribution, using these numbers, um, having, having a mental model of, of what's important or what things come together as important before you start the analysis is important. And I know that's a lot of work and that's boring and it's more fun to, oh, my guy's great, your guy sucks because metric X, but that's, that, that's the one that annoys me. Yeah, I think from, from, <laughs> where, from where I'm at, I think I noticed just a lot that if the metric confirms one of those priors, like if it, if you're like, this guy's a good defender and the metrics don't show that he's a good defender, but this metric shows that he's a good defender. So this metric is good. And I'm always like, but you're not considering the imp- impacts on everybody else. You need to go through the, like the whole thing and look at, are all these guys on this list good defenders? And does that match like what you think? And that's before you even get into the fact of like, yeah. how is the stat done? Like real plus minus has, has like a lot of, like a lot of backing from very smart people. And I've come around on it especially some of the, the different models that are out there, uh, variations on it. But a lot of the ones that have been, have, that are of public use are also, there are adjustments that are made to those which are not in the public domain. So if I'm not able to explain to somebody, here's how this is built, I personally can't be like, this is why I trust this. Like I'll, I might reference it in passing as part of a greater combination of, okay, there's all of these different data points, including this, but we use some metrics, including I think RPM a little bit to, uh, to go like, all right, so this is the one that really gets at it. And I'm like, I can't tell you that because I don't even know what's under the hood. Like if it's proprietary, which I'm also like being on the APB or metrics boards back in like 2007, it's very like confusing to me to be like, why is it everyone sharing everything? I don't understand why everything isn't published. Um, and that, that's where I start to get concerned is when we're relying on metrics that are like very very vague and nebulous and very much like, Oh, don't look at the wizard, but you know, don't pay attention to the man behind the curtain. Yeah. Just look at the wizard. So, and I think that, that, that a lot of that is, is sort of, there's, there's bias that creeps into all of those kind of unintentionally. And that get back, gets back to, to my original point. These with the 
kind of the democratization of like statistical tools, um, you can get, uh, it, it's reasonably easy to fit a model and get an answer to precisely the question you're asking. The problem happens when the question you're actually, you've actually instructed the computer to answer is different than the one you're asking in your head. And that's where a lot of the, the, you know, the basketball question you're asking in your head is different than the, the, than what, whatever the model you've built is, is doing. And that's where some of the confusion and disconnects happen. Um, and I, I tend to be with you. I prefer, uh, I will definitely trade some, uh, some precision for interpretability and explainability, um, at least in, from a discussion standpoint every time, uh, just because I feel like that kind of, um, it, well, here's why I think it is, tends to be more powerful than because this implacable number says so, which uh, has yet to really get me anywhere in an argument, either in public or private domains. <laughs> I want to thank Seth for coming on. You can find him on Twitter at Seth Partnow, P-A-R-T-N-O-W. Make sure you download our app. It's phenomenal. Like I told you, you're going to get the, the best stuff and the best coverage. You'll be up to date on all the games and all the bets that you need to be making. As the NBA gets started back up again, check out all of the great content that we've got at Action Network. You can catch Seth also, by the way, at The Athletic. Uh, NBA podcast. He's on Fridays on Nerdish. He wrote quite often with Dave Dufour. For us, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You need to rate, review, and subscribe. We need those iTunes five-star ratings. Help us out. Get all of your stuff ready. Get set and set up for the return of sports and the return of sports gambling. It's exciting. It's here. I'll be back again next Friday with, with another episode, NBA edition of the Action Network Podcast. We're finished talking.